Just raise your hand. We'll hand you a Bible as soon as uh, one of these guys come down here. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, I love that. Um, I don't know if you noticed this. The uh, youth group uh, was meeting over at the beach. There he is. Uh, was meeting over at the beach. They were doing a polar plunge. I love when a polar plunge turns into a baptism for Jesus, right? I love that. I uh, love that our youth group's doing stuff. Uh, I, had a, I did a polar plunge one time. I, uh, one of my buddies said, I want to get baptized. Um, it was in January. I said, sure, man, I'm ready. Whenever you're ready. He said, I want to go over to the ocean. I said, okay, you know it's January, right? He said, yeah. And so we drive all the way over there. It's after church one Sunday. He had, he had kind of made a plan, and, um, I, and two or three of us went over to on base at Camp Lejeune. And um, we go out there, and he gets out of the truck and puts on a full wetsuit, and I'm there in a... I'm there in a, uh, just a swim trunks, you know, like, I'm like, hold on a minute. I think it was invalid. I think actually God rejected that one, but Uh, I love, uh, I love Micah's sort of intro today to get us thinking about some of the traditions. And let me just mention a couple of things about our star tree. It's one of my favorite days of the year when we see all the presents come in kind of on a day like today. Um, let, me, let me just tell you two things about that. I don't think he mentioned this, so let me mention. Um, there are a handful of stars. You guys have done a wonderful job. There's just a couple stars left on the table in the foyer. And if anybody hasn't had a chance to um, get something for a student or for one of these kids, uh, please do that today and bring it back. Uh, the youth ministry will be here tonight so you can get back in or first thing in the morning. We're also going to be sorting through these packages, making sure they go to the correct uh, kids and families tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. And then, uh, so if you can come help, we would love to have a little more help with that. It goes a little faster. And then also Wednesday morning, uh, we'll be delivering those to the people who will get them to the family. So if you have time this week, you'd like to serve during this Christmas season, as you all often do, we would love for you to, to uh, help us with that today. Uh, and then tomorrow morning, and then Wednesday morning. Uh, as I mentioned last week, my job in our family when it comes to decorating for Christmas is the yard. And uh, we live on Canterbury. Uh, somebody mentioned going doing the hayride. There was a hayride in our neighborhood. Uh, it started with tree balls. Now, it's branched out. We've had a lot of uh, people move in from the north. They don't really understand tree balls uh, as much, right? Uh, all these Yankees coming down here. Is Yankee a bad? Am I allowed to say? I am a Yankee, actually, by seven miles. I was born seven miles from the Mason-Dixon, um, north of the Mason-Dixon. But I've been, I've been a Southerner for a while. So years ago, probably, I've never told this story, uh, probably, unless you're new here, you know that uh, it was myself and three of my neighbors who started the whole tree ball thing. Did you know that? Um, this, you, if you're ever on Jeopardy, you might get that question. So... <laughs> Uh, you need to know that we, we, uh, one of our, one of my neighbors years ago, his dad lived in Greensboro and there's a neighborhood that does kind of this whole tree ball thing. And so he sent us the, 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 um, how to make them. We said, we'll do it. So we got together like several Monday, we're watching Monday night football and making tree. It was like man crafts, you know, like (laughs) hanging out, you know, guys doing man stuff. And so I think the first year I had maybe five or seven tree balls in my yard. And the, the first year really was about who could get one up the highest in the tree. And then we started making more and more. And I think at the pinnacle for me, I had close to 100 tree balls that I put out in my yard. And my yard still didn't look as good as my neighbor, Mr. Tant. His yard always and still looks the best, in my opinion, in the whole neighborhood. And one year, one of my neighbors had a connection with a friend who worked 
for Caterpillar and a, a lift showed up. You know what I mean by like a cherry picker? Uh, here's a pic picture. That's not my house, but that is a cherry picker. And um, so we went up in this lift, and that really amps up the whole Minecraft thing, right? <laughs> bigger, bigger tools. Uh, and so we started putting them up really high, and I started um, doing a tree. We have like this big spruce tree that's probably 50 feet high in our front yard. And we started decorating this spruce tree, and it was pretty impressive, but it was a lot of work. I mean, it would take me a whole day Saturday and sometimes into a whole other uh, half a day on Sunday. I was actually pretty happy when that neighbor moved. I'm not happy that he moved, but I'm, I'm happy we don't get the lift anymore, so I don't have to do that. But there were times when, um, so that's a view looking down from the lift. Um, there were times when uh, I would be at the very top of the lift, and um, I would have to get up on the cage to reach and put the star out over. I was literally out on a limb, you know, uh, wow. out on, on this thing lifting. And I, it was scary. It was, a, it was kind of a risky move. But that's kind of what I want us to think about this morning. Because things that have the greatest impact often include the greatest risk. So to get the star at the top of the tree, um, go one more. If you can see there, that's the tree. To get that all the way up there, I had to take a little bit of a risk. But that um, greatest impact comes when you take the greatest risk. And so even though I had to risk my life, right, it looked great. That star on the top of the tree was worth it. You could see it uh, throughout the neighborhood. Have you ever taken a risk at Christmas? Maybe you decided to um, make a new dish and take it to Christmas dinner at the in-laws. Have you ever taken that risk, uh, anybody? Uh, maybe you, uh, and, I, I don't, and by risk, I don't mean like maxing out your credit card. That's not what I mean. Like, but maybe you went out on a limb to buy the perfect Christmas gift for somebody. Not sure if they would like it or not, but you thought if, if they do, it's really going to be great, right? It's, if we take that risk. Or maybe you bought an engagement ring and asked her to marry you during the family get-together. That's kind of risky. What if she says no, right? Um, things that have the greatest impact often include the greatest risk. And if that's true for our lives and if it's true for Christmas, it's true in our lives spiritually as well. Today we're going to be in the book of Joshua. Does everybody remember, maybe you didn't grow up in Sunday school, the story of Joshua? Joshua was born in Egypt uh, during the time of Moses. He was a witness to the miracles that God did when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And Joshua becomes Moses' sort of second-in-command or his understudy during the 40 years that the Israelites wander in the wilderness. Joshua is then one of uh, the 12 spies that go into that promised land of Canaan, right? Uh, 12 spies, 10 were bad, 2 were good. Uh, Joshua and Caleb were the two good spies who came back with a favorable report. The other 10 said, oh, the, the people are too many. The, people, the cities are too fortified. Uh, we can't do this. But Joshua and Caleb understood who God was better than the other spies. And then after Moses dies, Joshua takes leadership of Israel. And at God's leading, Joshua and the people of Israel prepare to inherit the promised land. And God says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land that I swore to your ancestors to give them. So we see this same idea, this same sentiment in Joshua's life and leadership. Great impact often requires great risk. 
He's ready to lead God's people, right? Joshua accepts the risk to lead Israel into the promised land. So in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends two spies to see whether the walled and fortified city of Jericho could be conquered. The spies find a way into the city by way of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, it doesn't mean that these spies were ungodly, but it would have been common for someone who was in Rahab's occupation, is that a nice way to say it, to offer rooms to rent to those traveling through Jericho. Think of it more of a sort of a side hustle, right? Uh, she, had, uh, she often had people come into her house, and so she would rent rooms to people from time to time. It, it would be too conspicuous for the spies from Israel to stay at an inn in downtown Jericho, right? So they stayed with her, which her house also was a part of the wall that made the wall around the city. And no one would think much of a couple men staying at her house. Apparently, something did tip off the people of Jericho uh, that there were two men from Israel staying with Rahab. Word got to the king who sent a message to Rahab to bring the men to him since he believed they were there to spy on Jericho. But instead of bringing the men to the king, Rahab hides the men and keeps them safe. Let's pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. The Bible says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. So apparently... Word had spread about the mighty things that God, that the God of Abraham had done. How he had led Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and had defeated their enemies. And after these victories, it left the people of Jericho in fear. Rahab says in verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So this is exactly the kind of intel that Joshua needed to hear about Jericho and the whole land of Canaan, right? They had heard of Israel's God and the defeat of their enemies. The text says their hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed. So not only did Rahab hide these spies and protect them, but she gave them the needed information that Joshua would need to be sure of, God, to be sure of God's timing and when to attack Jericho. Knowing the value of this information, Rahab asks for kindness. Look at verse 12. Now then, Rahab says, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So the spies agreed to spare Rahab since she had not given them up to the king. Verse 15 goes on. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she, 
where she lived was in part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hill so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. So the spies, these men left and promised to spare Rahab and her family, anyone who was inside her house, anyone who was brought into her house during the time that um, Israel would attack Jericho, would be spared, and the sign would be a scarlet cord tied in her window. As long as she kept their secret, she and her family would be spared. It's a pretty risky move for Rahab, wasn't it? She lied to the king. She hid the spies. She let them out of Jericho. She told them where to go and how to hide and how to return safely. But remember, it's risky, but great impact often requires great risk. My question as I look at this story is is this, why would Rahab take such a risk? And if you think about it, Rahab took the risk before she was offered any reward, didn't she? she? She was not guaranteed anything from the spies. I think there's a couple reasons, three reasons. First of all, Rahab was aware of the mighty works of God. Verse 10 again, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. So Rahab was aware of how God had dried up this Red Sea and how the people of Israel had crossed on dry land. That must have been a terrifying realization for the people of Jericho and the people of Canaan right, that Israel's God had power over nature. And that story had made its way across the desert and into Canaan. Behind the walled city of Jericho, they had heard about this mighty act of God. And that was 40 years before. The legend had been passed on to this generation, but that's not all. Rahab was aware of how God had conquered these uh, kingdoms of Sihon and Og, these, um, these cities, right? Israel's God had power over the fortresses of men. So not only did God, the God of Moses have power over nature, but he had allowed Israel to defeat these two kings, Sihon and Og. There was no fortress of man that could stand in the face of Jehovah God. Remember, This was interesting to Rahab and the people of Jericho because Jericho was a walled city. They believed that they were secure against most enemies, but the stories of these victories over man and their fortified cities had reached their ears and they were terrified. But that's not all. Rahab was aware that Israel had defeated the kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, not only defeated, but completely destroyed these kings. In other words, Israel's God was greater than the earthly kings and earthly power. There was no force of nature that Israel's God could not overcome. There was no fortified city that Israel could not defeat. No earthly power too great for Jehovah God. So the people of Jericho were melting in fear. The spies had done their job. Jericho was ripe for defeat. That's just one reason I think Rahab took the risk. She also did because I believe Rahab feared God more than she feared the king. 
If you go back to verses 3 and 4, Joshua chapter 2, it says, So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. So Rahab's awareness of God, the God of Israel, led her to take some big risks. It was a calculated risk, though, right? She feared God, this God that she had heard about, this God that was the God of Israel, that was the God that led Israel out of Egypt and conquered their enemies. She feared that God more than she feared her own king. She lied to the king to protect the spies of Israel. And finally, Rahab allowed her awareness of God to influence her decision. She just wasn't uh, uh, in knowledge of these things, but she let it dictate how she reacted and things that she did. Verse 20 and 21 says, If you tell me what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in her window. Rahab... Think about the amount of belief she had. She'd only heard of Israel's God. No real experience with him at this point. But even that awareness influenced her to make some major decisions. She'd never seen these things herself. She'd only heard about them. She had never worshipped this God that she had heard about. She was simply aware. And it changed the course of her life. My question for us today is this, how aware of God are we? What is your image of God? How clearly do you see and know God? A.W. Tozer, theologian, said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that for a minute. Nothing in all of your life will impact your relationship with God, your relationship with people, your self-view, your decisions, and your purpose like the way you think about God. How could Rahab take such risks for a God she had never seen or worshipped? She had a true awareness of God. And it shaped her decisions and ultimately shaped the course of her life. So what is your image of God? Tozer goes on to say, we tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Right? Whatever our image of God is, whatever we conjure up when we think about God, whatever um, thoughts or ideas or things that we know or believe about God, we tend to move towards that in our lives. So if we have an insufficient view of God, then our relationship with God is going to be insufficient. If we have a weak image of God, then our faith in him will be weak. If we have a shallow image of God, then our interaction with God will be shallow. But if, like Rahab, we are in awe of God, it will shape our lives and our decisions. Chip Ingram, in his book, The Real God, asks this question. 
What if the most important thing about your life, your future, your relationships, and all that you are is whether you have a clear, accurate picture of God? What if the most important thing about your life, your future, your relationships, and all that you are is whether you have a clear picture of God? You ever been to the eye doctor? Right? Um, the older I get, the more often I have to go. Uh, they, they put you behind this big, it's like a giant, I don't know what it is, it's scary. But they put this thing up, and you have to look through it, and it's got all of these dials and switches. And sometimes they get a, and look in your eyes, and then sometimes they'll say, okay, look through the, this machine, um, through these lenses, and look at the, the eye test on the wall, the letters. What do you see, right? And it typically goes, goes like this. Which is better, this or this, <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? And there's like a little click. I don't know what's going on. And I'm going to tell you 95% of the time, it all looks the same to me, right? <laughs> Which is better, this or this? Yes. I don't know. But eventually, they'll click on the view of the letters, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's really good. I can see that very clearly. So Ingram suggests that there are three lenses that will help us to see God more clearly. First of all is this lens. Maybe write these down. God is not like us. We need to understand. That is a lens that will help shape our view of God. We need to understand and know that God is not like us. We have to see that God is just not like us. We're different. He is not bound by time, space, dimension. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. You know, like in mythology, the gods of mythology are just sort of larger-than-life people. That's what happens when man conjures up what God looks like. They're just people with some special powers, typically. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25 and 26, the prophet, um, sort of speaking on behalf of God, God says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls from forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. See, when we think about God, the first thing we have to understand, when we put this lens on, it helps us to see God more clearly. He's simply not like us in so many ways. Secondly, second lens is we tend to reduce God to manageable terms, don't we? That's human nature. Our tendency is to shrink God into terms that we can understand, that we can get our head, head around, get our minds around. We try to fit God into something we can comprehend instead of letting God be the overwhelming God of the universe that he is. That's why men make idols. Here's a stone represent, representation of what I think God is like. And here are the attributes of this little idol. Paul wrote to the Romans, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. 
and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Don't do what we as humans do, which is limit God into something that our minds can comprehend. He's much bigger than that. And thirdly, the lens I think we need is this. God can only be known as he reveals himself. We, we also can't go beyond who God has revealed to us. God has made himself known, but only in certain ways. If we're going to see God accurately, we have to see him as he has revealed himself to us. And there's three basic ways. Through nature, right? Have you ever seen a sunset? Have you ever looked up on a starry night? Have you ever been at the ocean at dawn on the East Coast? Right? We see him. Oh, God, my God, how majestic. We see him through nature, through the things that he's created. Just like when you see a great work of art, you know that someone painstakingly made that piece of art. We also see him through his word. The most accurate way that we know God is by looking at God's word. How much are you, time are you spending getting to know God through these chapters, through these words? And finally, we see him through Jesus. So when we see a sunset or a mountain vista, our hearts immediately think of a creator. When we think about how vast the universe and beyond is, we, we feel small. And we think about how big God has to be to have created, to just have spoken this into existence. When we see God through his word, we are seeing who God has revealed himself to be, holy, powerful, just, full of grace, full of love, protection. And we see him in the person and work of Jesus, God in the flesh. The Incarnation. In 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gargan became the first human to travel into space. Now, at that time, the official doctrine of the Soviet Union was atheism. So when Gagarin returned to Earth, he famously said, I went up into space and I didn't see God, which supported his atheistic worldview. In response to that, C.S. Lewis wrote that if there is a God, we certainly don't relate to him as people on the first floor of a building relate to the people on the second floor of a building. We relate to him the way Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. Right? We, as characters, might be able to know quite a lot about the playwright, but only to the degree that the author chooses to put information about himself in the play. And the truth is, God has written himself into the story. He's written himself into our story, in the person and work of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that brings us back to Rahab. Why in the world would the Christmas series include the story of a prostitute? 
Well, remember the genealogy of Jesus from last week? Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was oh, Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. So there, smack dab in the middle of Jesus' family tree is the name of Rahab, the prostitute. So apparently her understanding of God, her awareness of God and his power not only saved her life, but then she married Salmon, Salmon and had a son named Boaz. Boaz married Ruth and had a son named Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse and the grandfather of King David. And eventually, through the line of David, the incarnation, Jesus is born. In the city of David, Bethlehem, the Messiah. Because Rahab had a clear view of God, she took a risk. That risk changed her life, and it changed the course of history. Why? Because great impact often requires a great risk. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for the stories that we read throughout the New Testament. And Lord, we thank you for that thread that's woven through all of these stories that lead to one thing, and that's your son, Jesus. Lord, we don't have a Savior who is unaware who doesn't know what it's like to be human because you sent your son and he became a part of this story. You, the God of the universe, became flesh, became human so that we could identify with you. Lord, that's how we know you. And Lord, we're thankful for stories in the Old Testament that teach us about people like Ruth that teach us about people like Rahab. What an unlikely family tree. And Lord, I just pray that we would be willing, based on our understanding of who you are, that we would be willing to take great risks because at the end of that, there's great impact, not only for our lives, but generationally for our families and Lord, for this whole world. So I just pray, Lord, that you give us the opportunity as we see you more and more each day, as we understand you by looking through these lenses, that we're willing to take these risks because we know what kind of an impact that will have on our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.